Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 5, A Savior of Europe. So we find Bulgaria at the beginning of the 8th century still dangerously positioned on what was so recently Byzantine land, sandwiched between one of the great empires of the day and a vast and dangerous steppe full of volatile tribes. But the new Bulgarian state had just survived what history has shown time and time again to be one of the most dangerous moments of statehood, a transition of power. Terno the son of Asparuch, had taken control. And it was a good thing, because if you listened close enough, you could just hear the clink, clink of the young state moving up the first big hill of a roller coaster of a rain. Now, we know next to nothing about the first few years of Tervel's reign, mostly because of our heavy reliance on Byzantine sources, who only wrote about the Bulgarians when it interested them though I believe it can be safely assumed that he would have spent these early years solidifying his power, as well as picking up where his father left off in establishing the still very young state. But about four years into his reign, events in Constantinople will thrust the new Khan to the forefront of Byzantine politics, for the first of many times. However, in order to understand those events, it's necessary to take a brief detour and discuss the Byzantine emperor who would trigger these events, Justinian II. Justinian II had been well-groomed for his position. He was raised by his father to be the future emperor, achieving the status of co-emperor when he was just 12 years old. By the time he was 16, his father had died, and he was the sole ruler of Byzantium. So far, so good, right? Now, to be honest, he was reasonably competent as far as emperors who take the reins at 16 go. I mean, off the top of my head, I can't honestly come up with a successful monarch who rose to power at or around that age. Now, I'm sure they're out there, so if one comes to mind, may post, it about it on our, post about it on our Facebook page. But in general, achieving absolute rule over an empire around puberty, generally not the best thing for one's mental health or the health of the empire. Now, early in his reign, Justinian II played the classic Byzantine game of balancing his forces between the Balkans and Anatolia so as to defend the empire's borders from its slew of hostile neighbors. Still, this continued to be a losing battle for the Byzantines, as the empire fell victim to revolts, disloyal auxiliary troops, and the growing power of the Muslim Arabs. In the meantime, Justinian II was also very busy losing friends in the religious realm by holding religious councils which consciously highlighted differences between the Eastern and Western churches, aggravating the Western church immensely. Eventually, he managed to anger both the landholders and the peasants within the empire at the same time, always an impressive feat, leading to a full-blown rebellion which saw him deposed and replaced by a man named Leontios. Now, interestingly, uh, as per custom, his nose was then cut off in the belief that being mutilated invalidated one's potential for ruling in the future. But I suppose you can't keep a good man down as Justinian II replaced his nose with a solid gold replica. 
we can only assume that Justinian II had some sense of personal style. Anyways, he was exiled to the Crimea, where he lost no time in planning his comeback. Now, it's at this point that the Bulgarians finally come into play. Within a few years, Justinian II had managed to escape and was heading down the Black Sea coast. Along the way, he contacted Tervo to seek help in regaining his throne. Now, this is a pattern I want you to pay attention to because it's going to happen over and over in Byzantine history and is therefore important for the history of Bulgaria. When somebody wants to be the Byzantine emperor, then he often seeks the help of the empire's neighbors and tends to make huge concessions to those neighbors in exchange for their help. And needless to say, this does not tend to serve the empire well. But for a man like Tervo, it represented an unmissable opportunity. In exchange for his assistance in the form of around 15,000 cavalry, Tervo was to receive a hefty sum of money, the title of Caesar, a mar and marriage to Justinian's daughter. Now, this last reward may not sound like much, but it was a serious goal for the Bulgarian Khans. Marriage into the Byzantine royal family would mean many things. Increased legitimacy in the eyes of other monarchs, uh, a better assurance of peace, and most importantly of all, the possibility for a claim to the throne one day. There are many ways to conquer an empire, but marriage is certainly one of the easiest. Thus, after spending the winter with Tervo, in the spring of 705, Justinian marched to Constantinople at the head of an army of Bulgars and Slavs, bypassing a Byzantine army sent their way. Now, presumably, he expected the population of the city to welcome him and deliver the usurper. Okay, actually, the usurper of the usurper, as Leontius had already managed to be deposed and imprisoned by Tiberius III. Don't you just love Byzantine politics? Now, certainly this army had no chance of storming the walls of the city, as the walls of Constantinople remained probably the most formidable in the world and weren't about, about to break a sweat over some cavalry. So they had to find another way. They needed the population to be on their side. But there's a problem. If there's one thing that can make you more out of touch with your people than growing up as the emperor's son in a palace, it's being in exile for a few years. So let's say Justinian II didn't exactly have the best grasp of public opinion. So he and his army sat outside the walls for three days being mocked and insulted by the population of the city. Fantastic. But Tervo and his army were not about to let this whole endeavor go down in flames. Justinian II was going to return to the throne come hell or high water. Otherwise, Tervo would have just managed to anger the Byzantines in exchange for precisely nothing. He wasn't about to let that happen. So a plot was hatched after a disused aqueduct was discovered which led into the city. There was certainly no room for the whole army to get in, but there was enough for Justinian II and a small group of followers. So they snuck in under the cover of darkness and flung open the city gates in the middle of the night. This bloodless coup under the cover of darkness was a complete success. Noselessness be damned, Justinian II was now emperor again. Speaking of noselessness, both Leontius and Tiberius now had theirs hacked off and replaced with golden prosthetics in what seemed to be rapidly becoming an unintentional style amongst former Byzantine emperors. In any case, 
they were not former emperors for long, as they were both quickly executed. Actually, quite a lot of people were executed, as Justinian II indulged in an occasionally sadistic orgy of revenge. Now, Tanville, on the other hand, was busy receiving the title of Caesar and quite a lot of cash for his troubles. Marriage to Justinian II's daughter, however, would have to wait. I'll talk a little bit about that later. Still, this moment has to be seen as a real triumph for Tanville. Without having to even fight a battle, he has now gained the friendship of the Byzantine Emperor, gained plenty of cash, an imperial title, and was even given a bit of land south of the Balkan Mountains called Zagora, and hopefully a future wedding engagement. It's really not too bad for a 24-year-old state that was just beginning to establish itself on the map of Europe. Ah, but you may have detected a problem in what I just described. While I hate to play on the stereotype, it's true that things like friendship and loyalty don't tend to count for much in the realm of Byzantine politics. This is demonstrated here when only three years after Tervo rescues Justinian II's reign from oblivion, Justinian turns on the Bulgarians in an attempt to regain the Zagora region I just mentioned. Now, this is perhaps a good time to also mention that the sources never make it clear whether or not the marriage of Tervo to Justinian's daughter ever actually goes through, though perhaps these events might point to a reason why it may not have happened. But still, we really have no idea if the marriage ever happened. So, in the year 708, an army of Byzantines marched up the Black Sea coast supported by the Byzantine navy, again. Now, a daring or original military thinker, Justinian II was definitely not. These maneuvers were basically the same thing the Byzantines had done two, three times before in fighting the Bulgarians. Now, they brought the Byzantines to a place called Anchialos, which is now known as Pomorie in modern Bulgaria. It's a small peninsula just above the Bay of Burgas. Now, fortunately, uh, because I've actually spent a few weeks here one summer, I'm going to describe the place to you a little bit, because this site, this exact same site, is going to be the site of not one, not two, but several very important battles of Bulgarian history, including, at one point, the largest battle of the Middle Ages. So I'm going to try to paint a little picture for you. The fortress of Anchialos is on a narrow peninsula which juts abruptly into the Black Sea. Now, it was easily defended owing to the need to only fortify the inland-facing side, a really a great fortress. As mentioned, there were really no other naval powers besides Byzantium and the Black Sea. The Bulgarians really never challenged them there. So there was also no need to worry about attack from sea. From, the, from the, this peninsula, there's a gently rising plain that slowly moves up towards the very, very end of the Balkan mountain range. You can kind of see them in the distance, very low by the time they get to the coast. The land is sandy and filled with hardy grasses. The seaside usually has cliffs on it, and provides a lovely breeze on most days. Now, from here, I'll let Theophanes the Confessor take over with the narrative. Quote, we had reached Anchialus, and he anchored his fleet in front of the fortress, and commanded that the cavalry should encamp in the plains above, without guard or any suspicion. As the army scattered into the fields like sheep to collect hay, the Bulgarian spies saw from the mountains the senseless disposition of the Romans. Gathering together like wild beasts, they suddenly attacked and inflicted 
great losses on the Roman flock, taking many captives, horses, and arms in addition to those they killed. As for Justinian, he sought refuge in the fortress with the survivors and for three days kept the gates shut. On seeing the perseverance of the Bulgars, he was the first to cut the sinews of his horse and order that the others do the same. After setting up trophies on the walls, he embarked at night and stealthily sailed away, and so reached the city in shame. So to recap what happened there, the Byzantines were carelessly sort of hanging out outside the fortress. The Bulgarians noticed this, descended upon them, and cut the army down. So the, the emperor and a few of his friends managed to get to the fortress, sit there for three days, and finally flee in shame after kind of making their horses lame by cutting the equivalent of their Achilles heels so that the Bulgars couldn't use them. It was a complete and utter rout. So Tannerville at this point has no intention to go on the offensive. He's satisfied with the status quo antebellum. He had taught the Byzantines a lesson and frightened them from making any more attacks on Bulgarian territory for decades. Now, as usual, the Bulgarians and Tervil now, again, fall off the radar somewhat, as their direct interaction with the Byzantines, and therefore with the Byzantine chroniclers, ends for a few years. But Tervil re-enters the story very quickly after, when the mismanagement of Justinian II, having picked up right where he left off, prompts a revolt in Anatolia in 711, three years after the Battle of Ancelos. Now, astonishingly, and I really mean astonishingly, when this revolt happens, Justinian II asks Tervel for help in putting it down. Seriously. Now, where he found the gall to do such a thing is a question completely beyond my ability to answer. I mean, he got all this help from Tervel, they rewarded him, then attacked him a few years later, and now a few years is again asking for his help. But what's even more surprising than this is that Tanvel actually sent 3,000 troops to help. Why he did this, I, again, I really don't know. The whole thing is extremely strange. But probably fortunately for everyone involved, this was not enough to save Justinian II. He was captured and executed, and the new emperor, Philippicus, allowed the Bulgarians to return home in peace. Though they did decide to get something out of the situation and raided Thrace to the outskirts of Constantinople, while the city was in too much chaos to resist. As I mentioned, sure friends were hard to come by. A few years later in 716, yet another crisis came upon the Byzantine Empire. Now this crisis would again thrust Tervel into the forefront of Byzantine and even European history. Now for decades, the Arab tribes fighting under the banner of Islam had been making steady progress against the Byzantine Empire. Beginning with Egypt and the Levant before moving steadily up to parts of Anatolia, the Caucasus, and Armenia. Now, their conquest was coming to a head. The Prophet Muhammad himself had called for the conquest of Constantinople, and therefore the city was in a way the ultimate prize for the armies of Islam. Their determination was made abruptly clear by the massive size of the forces they mustered, with around 120,000 troops and 2,500 ships. Though, to be frank, the numbers given by various Byzantine and Arab sources are a bit all over the map. In any case, this is a good estimate, and it was also 
definitely, without question, a very, very, very large army. Now, unlike the previous siege of Constantinople by the Arabs, this is not a half-hearted endeavor by a raiding party. This was a purpose-built force, an army which existed for no other reason than to take Constantinople. But the Byzantines were preparing too. They knew this attack was coming ahead of time and had been both preparing the city's defenses and concluding a treaty with the Bulgarians to ensure their assistance when the attack came. This treaty did several important things. First, it finalized the border between the Byzantines and the Bulgarians, something more important than you might think, considering what kind of conflict that's about to come. It also resumed the annual tribute which the Byzantines had begun paying the Bulgarians after the establishment of the Bulgarian state in 681. But beyond reasserting the status quo, minus the Byzantines accepting the region of Zagora now firmly under Bulgarian control, the treaty also sought to really stabilize this key relationship before the Arab assault came. In this light, Khan Pervel and the Byzantine emperor agreed not to harbor or assist individuals who were attempting to usurp each other's thrones. The Byzantines had clearly lost patience with the Bulgarian tendency to support usurpers. Finally, to further deepen the ties between the two states, formal economic relations with the establishment of seals required for goods to legally move between the markets was set up. The Byzantines, at this point, knew how helpful the Bulgarians could be in a tough situation, and in this treaty they demonstrated how important it was that it was in the Bulgarian self-interest to ensure that Constantinople remained unconquered. Because while the enemy you know is generally preferable to the enemy you don't know, the Byzantines were not going to take any chances. They had to sweeten the deal and ensure that the Bulgarians would be on their side. Because frankly, the Byzantines were right to be worried. When the Arab army reached Constantinople, they immediately set about building a double siege wall around the city and making their camp between the walls. The enormous Arab fleet actually had less luck, though. Their attempt to blockade the city by sea was met with volleys of Greek fire, uh, a still kind of mysterious substance, that, uh, sort of a liquid that would set uh, ships alight when it hit them. Now, this victory on sea allowed Constantinople to be resupplied by sea and also to fish Again, kind of allowing the city to resupply itself with food, somewhat indefinitely. But soon the well-laid plans of the Arab army also began to unravel. After devastating the countryside around the city, the army found it couldn't live off the land. And through acts of sabotage, the army was losing much of its supplies. This combined with a strangely harsh winter led to mass famine and the spread of disease in the Arab army. By the time spring came, the Byzantines were having more successes on sea, leading to the sea lanes of the city being completely reopened. It was at this point that Tervel and the Bulgarians re-entered the scene. Just as losses on sea and the harshness of the winter had sunk into the army, Tervel attacked from the north. Now, while details of the attack are scarce, the sources disagree about why exactly he attacked, whether it was due to the treaty with the Byzantines or whether the Arabs strayed into Bulgarian territory. Another source says the Bulgarians had actually been helping the Byzantines from the very beginning. Regardless, nearly all accounts ascribe a great victory to the Bulgarians, which resulted in the death 
of around 22,000 Arabs. This was essentially the last straw, and the Arab army soon retreated. For his part, Tervo was given the title, the Savior of Europe, to add to his Caesar. Now, there are conflicting records about the time of Tervo's death. I know I'm jumping ahead here, but again, the moment Tervo drops off the Byzantine radar, he drops off our radar. But this is sort of the last major event with him. So looking to the time of his death, I tend to lean towards accounts that have him dying as late as 721, as opposed to some others which describe his death as much as 10 years earlier. You'll see, the sort of death periods of many of the Bulgarian Khans during this era are really all over the map sometimes. Now, this timeline puts him in the spotlight of the Byzantines actually one more time, uh, if it's true, as yet another deposed emperor asks him for help in regaining his throne. Now, despite the treaty, Tervel actually initially agrees and provides assistance, but this time it soon becomes obvious that the deposed emperor has no chance, and Tervel is persuaded by the new sitting emperor to withdraw his support and hand over any Byzantines he was harboring in Pliska. So shortly after this, as I mentioned in 721 most likely, Tervel finally dies, and is succeeded by his son, Kormesi. He had ruled Bulgaria for around two decades, and seen it through some of the most chaotic times of its early history. I mean, really, it's incredible to think that all of this happened in just 20 years. Now, in addition to this, Tervel is rare among early Bulgarian rulers in that he actually does leave a distinct physical legacy. It's a legacy which is visible on almost all Bulgarian coins, and which is carved into the bare rock, the Madara horseman. This monument was likely created around the middle of Tervel's reign and is represented by a horseman, accompanied by a dog and an eagle, and who's spearing a lion. It likely portrays Tervel in a symbolic role leading his people to military victories. Now, this was a very serious work of propaganda. It was carved 23 meters, that's 75 feet, above the ground on a nearly vertical cliff. In its heyday, the monument would have been a large, visible, and impressive monument to the power and permanence of the young state. Now, I should mention, there's also a theory that the horseman was actually carved by the Thracians centuries earlier, and that the Bulgarians only added the text around it. Although I tend to lead more towards the hypothesis that it's from the early 8th century. But either way, I encourage you to check out photos of the horseman on the website, and if possible, go visit it yourself. It's still there, and still amazing. Okay, so how should we look at Tervo in retrospect? Most obviously, and as I mentioned previously, he oversaw a peaceful transition of power from his father to himself, and thereby established a, tradi a tradition of stable rule for the young state. More than that, Tervel navigated the mind-boggling complexity of Byzantine politics masterfully, bringing Bulgaria victories in battle, propaganda, and geopolitics. He won immense prestige in the form of titles, and a possible marriage to the Byzantines, while also showing the military might of his new state time and time again. While we don't really know much about his domestic policies, what we know about his foreign policy alone, in my mind, places him amongst the most successful Bulgarian leaders. In his actions, he typified Bulgaria's ongoing relationship with Byzantium 
and showed how it's going to go for centuries to come. In that, in Bulgaria, the Byzantines truly had no greater friend and no worse enemy, except perhaps for the armies of Islam. Now, obviously, we can also attribute great importance to Tervo's role in keeping Constantinople in the control of the Byzantines. The city would stand for more than seven centuries before being taken by the Ottomans, and the difference for Europe in having such a great fortress continue to guard the Balkans from that time can hardly be overstated. So again, we can see Tervel as one of the most important Bulgarian rulers, not just in the history of Bulgaria, but in the history of Europe. This serves as another reminder why Bulgarian history helps inform us of a broader knowledge of European history. I mean, the fact that the 1717 to 1718 siege of Constantinople doesn't get nearly the same fame as the Battle of Tours, which blunted the advance of Muslim armies into France, is a testament to this imbalance. Both cases were integral areas where the advance of Islam into Europe was stopped. But we know the Battle of Tours and you know, the Second Arab Siege of Constantinople is just far, far less famous. And so is the Bulgarian role, the critical Bulgarian role, in concluding that siege. So I'm going to cut it off here. Next time we're going to talk about several rulers which uh, led Bulgaria through a relatively peaceful period after Tervel's rule, and we're going to look a little bit at kind of what's going on around Bulgaria during this time. Now, this podcast is produced by Martin Christoff. The composer of our theme music is Teddy Raven, and the story is written by me, Eric Halsey. Help us spread the word by liking us on Facebook or writing a review on iTunes. Now, I'm very proud to say that we now have a five-star average on iTunes. It's amazing to see those stars next to our podcast. Also, please check out our website at bghistorypodcast.com, where you can find useful resources that will come along with each episode. And finally, I want to thank listener David Farrow for his donation. Every time you guys donate, it helps us recoup the costs of making this podcast, but much more importantly than that, it gives us a huge boost of excitement. There's nothing like getting word of a new donation. So I hope you're all enjoying this podcast as much as we're enjoying making it. So until next time, uspek, or in English, good luck.